Genesis. Uh, and tonight, the passage we're reading out of the life of Abraham is something fit for, like, Game of Thrones. <laughs> Basically, there's, this, uh, there's been this amazing battle taking place uh, between warring tribal kingdoms, like five kings against four kings, and they're raiding, and you're kind of reading these verses and going, like, what is this doing in the middle of this story about Abraham? We're going to pick up kind of in the middle after a bunch of the, like, strange and hard-pronounced names have, and places have been listed, and it, we're picking up uh, kind of where it suddenly like this epic battle between these warring kingdoms comes home for Abraham. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, this is just sort of a side note, uh, the languages or the language and words that are used to describe the places and the people are proper to the period. There's a lot of theories that Genesis was written much, 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 much later, uh, but the words of the regions are places that had changed names later. And these are the old names. And so we like good confidence that this is a good old story uh, close to the events. And so we're picking up here with Abram as this uh, global political figure. So let's pick up at verse 11. We've got a few verses there about these different kings fighting. But uh, these, these kings are fighting with each other, and then they, the, the winning four people kind of swoop down in verse 11. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. So they also took Lot, son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eschol and Aner. Those were the allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all his possessions, and also brought back his kinsman Lot, with his possessions, and their women, and the people. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of, most, of God Most High, and he blessed him, and he said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but the young men, what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. Awesome, right? Very relevant to 2019. It's really applicable immediately to our lives, as we can all see. Uh, Let me pray, and we'll see if that uh, can happen for us. God, thank you uh, for this story. Uh, Help us to see how um, uh, an old, old story about warring tribal kings might have something to do uh, for us tonight. Uh, We pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, When I was 16, I drove a 1986 Ford Tempo with a broken muffler. Uh, I was very proud of it. Um, I was not proud of it. It was awful. Uh, people at school laughed at me when I came rolling in, and uh, one night, uh, there was something going on at my house, like family, friends coming over, but nobody my age, and my parents were like, yeah, you can go out. So I drove to my friend's house to see, because you couldn't text back then, 
I was just like, I'm just going to drive over to Pat's house and see if he's there. He wasn't. So I'm driving through these like country roads, and this truck pulls up behind me with its brights on, like a big pickup truck. And I'm kind of weaving through these country roads, and I can't quite see, and I'm checking the thing. And I'm like, why are these guys tailgating me? What's going on? And then suddenly, before I knew it, I was like in a ditch. <laughs> I had hit like a, a point where the road stopped, and another road started, and I didn't know the new road was coming, and I just went, boom, like into the ditch. Um, and uh, somehow or another, like I climb out of the car, and I'm looking at it. I'm fine. There doesn't appear to be a scratch on it. And then these same guys who were tailgating me have pulled over. And they're just like, I'm from Alabama. And they're just like these classic, like, redneck, good old boys. And they're like, hey, man, you all right? You know, I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. Sorry. And uh, it was your fault, but I'm sorry. And uh, they're like, all right, we got you. And, uh, of course, like, they had chains and a hook and literally a winch on the front of their car. You know, winch, like the thing with the steel cable that is, like, powered. Because, like, why would you not have that? Uh, why would not everyone have that on their vehicle? And so they've got a winch on the front of their truck, and they hook it onto my car, and they pull it out. There's not a scratch on it. It's working fine. I drove home. Just boom. They rescued me. <laughs> like, they kind of sort of, it was my fault. Like, you got to watch the road, not the lights, and you're, you know, like, move the mirror and drive. Uh, but uh, they rescued me. Like, I was in this, like, really vulnerable position. It would have been really bad. I, like, if they had not had a winch on the front of their car, like, I'm in trouble. Um, that's like a small little moment of rescue I can think of in my life where I'm like really helpless and somebody pulls me out. Um, and a, a while back I was thinking of like a bigger rescue because I was watching this short documentary about Hurricane Allison, if you know, uh, if you remember it. It's a long, you don't remember it because it happened in 2001. Uh, but it was this massive storm that hit the Gulf Coast and it like flooded uh, huge parts of Louisiana and Texas and it was just this massive like big big deal and uh what was really interesting though is that i was as i was watching this there's you know the flooding and there's people on their roofs and helicopters flying around and in this report it said acts of heroism were the norm on that day is what the narrator said acts of heroism were the norm on that day uh in june of 2001 and here we read this story of abram pulling his nephew out of the ditch lot is his nephew that he goes and rescues Uh, or pulling him off of the roof with his helicopter. He goes to the rescue. He saves him. Uh, And so I want to look at this little story of Abraham rescuing him, and I want to ask three questions about it. What did he do? Why did he do it? And how did he do it? What did he do? Why did he do it? How did he do it? Uh, First, what? Like, what did this rescue consist of? Uh, If you look at verse 14, uh, first of all, uh, what Abraham did, he went to great lengths. It says that he, he went in pursuit as far as Dan. If you look on a map from where Abram was to Dan, is 180 miles. So just to give you a frame of reference, if you're from the state of Virginia and know Virginia geography at all, Stanton, Virginia, is 160 miles from here. So I want you to imagine, I'm like, hey, my nephew's in trouble. Let's go to West Virginia tonight. Um, grab your sword and a camel we're going to West Virginia because my nephew's in trouble. Like, even if we were in cars, you'd probably be like, I don't, you know, no. Like, I don't think I'm, I'm going to go. Um, let me ask you this, as we look at this in the life of Abram. Are you willing to go out of your way for people in need? Like, um, are, are you able to go towards them? So typically, like, if somebody's having a problem, we kind of want our own space so that we can keep up with our own things. 
Uh, and this amazing thing in the Bible is there's this pattern all throughout of moving towards trouble. Which, if you're in trouble, if you're in the ditch, which you might feel like you're in tonight, that's really good news. But who are the people around you in trouble? Um, what does it look like to go toward him? Because that's what God does to us uh, in Jesus. Uh, the second thing about what did he do, he goes to great lengths, but he also does it at great cost. He does it at great cost. Um, so Abram at this point has developed, like he's like the head of a tribe, right? He's like a minor king, if you can think of it that way. And uh, it says that he takes, you know, his trained men in verse 14, which means they would have been people who were trained for battle, um, but also it's like his most able-bodied people. So he's the head of this, this tribe in an agrarian culture, and he takes the strongest and best people of his community, and he goes. Essentially, like for him, what that would have meant is taking a huge pay cut. It would have cost him uh, the time and the people resources um, and if you think about it, just as a financial thing, um, several years ago, do you guys know like how the housing market burst and it wrecked the whole economy, and we've had this thing called a recession for a while, we're still kind of coming out of? Uh, it started in like 2007, 2008, and a friend of mine uh, at my church is a contractor, he's a builder. And so people in that market were hit really hard, because like if people aren't buying houses, then there's not a lot of people wanting to pay you to build new ones, Right? And um, at the point at which I had last talked to him in the midst of the recession, and I think it went for extensively longer than this, but at this point it had been four months in which my friend Tim had not taken a paycheck for four months so that his employees, who were not working for him at the time, could be paid. Like he literally was not taking pay because it would have meant these men who work for him not getting their paycheck or being fired, which it would have been, like, in that economy, it would have been very legitimate to be like, hey, sorry, you guys are, like, construction workers. That's the breaks. Like, go find another job. Sorry. He took the hit. He took the pay cut because he didn't want to hurt the families that were working for him. Um, More than money, the hottest commodity on this campus is time. The hottest commodity for you at William & Mary is your time. It's not money, it's time. Uh, Are you willing to give your time away to people who need it? I'm going to read this to you. Uh, It's a little essay, and it's a little long, but I'm going to read it to you. It's called On the Virtue of Wasting Time uh, by a professor named Carl Truman who taught at Westminster Seminary and now teaches at Grove City College. And he's from Scotland. So imagine me doing this with a Scottish accent. Um, one of the, but he lives in America, so he's got these really interesting insights as he sort of observes uh, what's wrong with us. Um, <laughs> uh, one of the amazing things about modern American culture is surely the pathological fear of wasting time. It is especially evident in our attitude towards children. Public school kids have their lives scheduled from morning till night. Homeschool parents seem to regard any second of the day from the age of two that isn't used to learn Latin poetry or the cello or conversational Swahili as time that is wasted. It's a far cry from my childhood when school ran from nine in the morning till four in the afternoon, and then I was free to ride my bike, walk on the commons, or just sit around with friends. And it continues into later life. 
all the technology we have, and people seem to have less free time than ever. And he wrote this like eight years ago. All the technology we have. Indeed, we have surely lost the virtue that is laziness. The virtue that is laziness. As Kierkegaard once said, far from idleness being the root of all evil, it is rather the only true good. Idleness, says Kierkegaard. A truly amazing theological insight. Now, some may think that that is going a bit far. Of course it is. But compared to the idea that the essence of humanity is busyness, it is much to be preferred. If you've got a choice between hyper-busyness and laziness, Kierkegaard and Carl Truman are saying, let's choose laziness. Uh, the greatest testament to the power of wasted time in the history of the church is surely Luther's table talk. And table talk, if you don't know who Martin Luther is, a significant figure, theologian in the Protestant Reformation, and the people that he uh, taught in their seminary, which is where pastors are trained, uh, they wrote down quotes, just stuff Luther said around the dinner table, and it's been compiled into a little book called Table Talk. So it says, um, a collection of anecdotes and sayings collected by Luther's closest friends it reflects the full range of Luther as pastor, mentor, Christian, and friend. Reading the comments from advice to young preachers, such as myself, here's a, here's a quote from Martin Luther. The sixth mark of a good preacher is knowing when to stop. It's pretty good. Good amen. I'll try to make the sermon short to please uh, Pastor Martin. Uh, to comments on lawyers. One only studies something as dirty as law in order to make money. That's something Luther said around the table. To general observations on life, some of which don't bear repeating in a polite blog such as this. Apparently Luther was really like a big fan of fart jokes. I'm not making that up. Like it was kind of his thing. Um, I suspect Luther's table companions learned more about life and ministry while drinking beer and having a laugh with the Meister than in the university lecture hall. Numerous applications come to mind. And he's a seminary professor which trains pastors, so he's making this point, but it's true of you guys too. Seminary, or college, is the people with whom you strike, strike up friendships. Seminary is the people with whom you strike up friendships. Friendships. Real, embodied friendships that are not exclusively mediated through pixels. Did you catch that? Real embodied friendships that are not exclusively mediated through pixels are crucial to staying the course of life. <coughs> Laughter in the face of adversity and hardship not only being vital in this regard, but also, of course, an almost exclusively social phenomenon that requires company. <coughs> Drinking beer with friends is perhaps the most underestimated of all Reformation insights and essential to ongoing reform. And wasting time with a choice friend or two on a regular basis might be the best investment of time you ever make. If you're over 21 on the beer part, okay, all right, all right. Do you hear what he's saying? This spending time, that, 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 you experience that where you're like, what are we doing? I don't know. We're just kind of together and time whiles away. And that is actually really critical. Are you willing to waste your time with people? Do you believe that that is actually a gift to you and to them? 
Um, I, I think that Carl Truman is on to something. It's a great cost. Is it worth the cost? And then finally, a great risk. He takes a risk. On uh, verse 15, it says, he and his servants. So Abram is going into battle, if you didn't catch it, against four kings and their armies. And he takes this crew with them. This, and it's not just that he sends his soldiers. He goes into battle with them. And he's an old man. Uh, he could be killed. It's a tremendous risk that he is taking. And he's doing it for a nephew. If you've been around for the last few weeks, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, his nephew, Lot, had insulted him in chapter 13, uh, the chapter before this. We're not like that. Like, I avoid suffering at all costs. Uh, I'm a pastor. I've led different, like, mission trips and things like that throughout the years. Um, we don't go unless there's, like, an insurance plan and we know there's going to be bottled water on the scene and that we're going to have a nice... Like, the level of cost and risk that we're willing to take as Americans, we like it safe and planned and insured. Are you willing to suffer? Are you willing to be hurt? Are you willing to take the risk? Or like in Abram's case, where he's willing to potentially die. If you have anything in your life where you're like, you know what? I would die for that. It's worth risking everything. So that's what he did. That's what it looks like to to go towards uh, pain. And at this point, like a lot of you are, are Christians. At this point, this is where this kind of Warm, almost sickly, pleasurable feeling of guilt comes in. Tell me I'm bad. I needed to hear that I'm bad. Tell me I'm a bad person. I'm a bad Christian. I don't really love people. I don't, go to, I don't take a risk. I'm awful, and that's coming over you. So we need to ask more questions about what's going on here. Uh, that's, what, that's what he did, but now we need to ask, like, why did he do it? Why did he go to the rescue? Uh, first, uh, the, he saw the need. Uh, verse 14, again, it says, when Abram heard, so somebody escapes from this battle, and they bring the message to Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he was aware uh, that there was a need. And God had told him a few chapters ago, Abram, I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing to all people. So you'll be a blessing to others. He heard that his nephew's in trouble. He's aware of the problem. Uh, that documentary I mentioned before about uh, Tropical Storm or Hurricane Allison, it, I actually laughed out loud when I was watching it because it was an interview with a helicopter pilot, and he was talking about flying over the city, and he said this, the hardest part was telling who needed rescue and who was just hanging out on their roof. <laughs> I just thought that was hilarious because I'm like, who's just hanging out on their roof? Like, the floodwaters are rising. Like, do you need to be rescued, or are you just, like, having a cold one on your roof, <laughs> like enjoying the scenery. Like, I'm pretty sure they all needed rescue. But what he meant was like some people were in very dire need. Like they might have a medical issue. They might, the, the waters are rising faster. They can't stay there much longer. But I, I laughed because I'm like, you know, anybody on their roof in a flood probably needs some help. Um, but do you see the need around you? Here's this guy where like everybody's in so much need. Like who has the most need? Um, where do the needs around you exist? And if, if they exist, where do you, do you see it? Or are you looking for it? Are you just like enjoying the sunset as you fly your helicopter? Um, there's the macro. Uh, next week, stick around after RUF. We're going to watch uh, a short documentary about the current issues of human trafficking. Um, stick around for that. Tonight, if you're, 
If you don't have something to do overnight tonight, the Grace Covenant Homeless Shelter still needs some volunteers. Some people came down with the flu and had to cancel last second. You're up for it. Grace is going. You can get a ride with her. Um, there's these macro huge issues of poverty and injustice and all these like tensions in the world. And now that we have these like technology things that let us know whenever there's a problem anywhere in the world, it can be overwhelming, right? There's like so many needs. Uh, but what, what is our role to play? Those are important questions to ask. Or just the micro, the small. Um, do you see people around you here as being people in need? Um, if you're a Christian, do you actually believe that people need God? <coughs> do you believe that they need the gospel? Um, and which, as soon as I say that, it's sort of raises an objection, like if you're here exploring Christianity, this might be an objection for you, like why are Christians all about like proselytizing and telling other people to believe the way that they do, and you're going to tell me I, I need God, and you're going to rescue me by giving me God. It sounds like really uh, arrogant and condescending. Uh, I want to address that for a second. First, like everybody in the world, I don't care who you are, if you look at somebody somewhere in the world, you would say this person is in need of something. There's either something tangibly that they need, or there's something that if they would believe this thing that I believe, their life would be improved. Um, Christianity is not that different from that. It's just a claim. It's just a question of what is the need, and um, is that true or not? Um, So we're not doing something that different. And second, though, um, it actually is arrogant and condescending if we don't have the next two reasons why Abram did it. It is obnoxious and arrogant if it's not driven, moving towards the need, is not driven by these two things. Uh, so why did he do it? Because he saw the need. But the second reason he did it is so basic and so obvious. But he did it because of love. He loves his nephew. Again, verse 14, we saw this a couple of weeks ago. It said, when he heard that his kinsman lot. Kinsman is literally translated brother. Uh, this is his nephew. So like, Abram's like, these people kidnapped my boy. This is, this is, my, this is my guy. And so we're going to go get him. Because I love him. Uh, because he loves him. If you are a, the rare person who is zealous and eager to talk to people about Jesus, if you're a Christian, who's like, I can't wait to like evangelize my whole hall, and I'm going like to knock on the doors and make sure everybody in the dorm knows I'm a Christian, and I'm going to tell them about Jesus and how they can get saved. If you do that but you don't love people... The Bible says, like, you're completely missing it. It calls you a noisy, a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And it's not a gong that's playing with the rest of the band. It's like a bad, it's a bad thing. Um, but also, if you're on the other extreme, which is, which is probably more of us, where it's like, you know, I don't really want to talk about that to anybody. Like, I'm going to keep my kind of faith thing in, like, a little mason jar and put it in my bag. <coughs> you got to ask yourself, do you love people? Do you love them enough to have an awkward conversation? But then more than that, he loves him. But also, the other reason why is that Abram remembers his own rescue. Abram goes to the rescue because he himself has been rescued. If you were with us a few weeks ago, we read a story where Abram traffics his wife to Pharaoh. He pimps her out. He takes his own wife and says, she can be your wife. 
which is bad, right? And yet God comes in and rescues both of them and pulls them out of that and, and rescues Abram in spite of himself. Uh, when I drove into that ditch and those guys pulled me out, I wasn't like, I can't wait to tell everyone about this. Like, I, I look awesome here. Like, Instagram didn't exist, but I wasn't going to be like, what's up? Like, you know, like, I'm the idiot who drove into a ditch and had to be pulled out by, like, toothless good old boys. Like, that was not, that was not a cool moment for me. It was a humbling thing where I'm like, I'm the one who got myself into the ditch. But I also knew what it was like to be rescued by somebody else. And so if I'm going to then offer somebody else help, it's not out of this position of like, I'm better than you. I'm condescending. I get it. Abram knows what it's like to be in trouble by his own fault and have someone help him. Um, let me check the clock. How are we doing on time? Pretty good? I'm fine. Oh, I'm not fine. Um, I'll tell you the story later. It's like my friend David who did a cool thing. Um, so I finally want to ask, how did he do it? That's like what he did and why he did it. But I also need to know how. How did it happen? Again, verse 14, it says he took 318 trained men. Um, here's the thing. It's 318 trained men against four kings and their armies. Uh, one commentator I was reading called it a peanut-sized army. He takes this little troop and he wins. Like, it's amazing to me because, like, warfare in those days, like, you're talking, like, farmers who also have swords. Right? Um, and he takes 318 of these guys and wins. And it's amazing. It doesn't say, like, 318 Green Berets. It doesn't say 318 Ninjas. Like, um, the point of the story is that what we're supposed to pick up from the text is that this is a basically miraculous victory. And I love how specific it is, like 318. <laughs> like, I would have said like about 300. But when it's getting real specific like that, it's trying driving home the point of like, this is not a big crew. This is like a handful of people. There's no way they would have been able to do this without the help of what the text calls God Most High. Uh, it's a miraculous victory. Um, every so often, I get an email or a come along or a request. I get bombarded with like sort of outside Christian ministry things as a pastor who they've like looked me up on online, and, and sometimes they're asking me to like send you guys to go to their thing, like they're going to do a lunch and come come to this interview, or like they just want to tap in. But a lot of times they're offering, they're saying like hey, we're, we've got this like packaged ministry thing, and if you will take our thing, you will take the campus by storm. Like We're going to set William & Mary on fire for God. And sometimes it's from the outside, sometimes it's a movement within, and there's this idea that there's going to be some sort of massive movement that we're going to like really see God work because God works in the really huge things. And nine times out of ten, of course, I say no. Sometimes we partner with things. We try to make something happen and see what, see what happens. But the reality is, even when we do the big event, the next day, like Christians pay attention to it, and the next day the rest of us move on with the normal business at hand, with the normal tedious stuff of our lives. And that's where amazing ministry actually happens. We tend to see, we want to see it in the huge conference and the huge um, 
earth-shattering event. But more often than not, real ministry happens in just the boring, ordinary stuff. And God takes a little army of 318 people and does amazing things. And Abraham makes sure that God gets the glory for it. If you notice down to 22, um, the king of Sodom is like, hey, you know, you, you helped us out. Like, you, you, you brought our stuff back so you can take, you know, your share of it. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you say, I have made Abram rich. <laughs> you know what he's saying? Like, I'm not going to take a shoelace from this because I want everybody to know that God is the one who blessed me and not somebody else. This came from him. And so that's what I'm going to do. And then even more, uh, if you look up at verse 18, it says, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of Most High God. And he blessed Abram and he said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. So this guy, this weird guy, Melchizedek, who sort of comes out of nowhere. Uh, it's a really interesting thing. We'll go into that in a second. And then Abram gives him a tenth of everything that Abram has. So he, he rejects taking the spoils from somebody else. And then this guy, Melchizedek, priest of God Most High, comes to him, and he gives him 10%. Um, Melchizedek, literally translated, means king of righteousness. And it says he's the king of Salem. Salem is short, uh, was later expanded as a name. Remember I said before, it's an old name word. It later became Jerusalem, or Jerusalem. And Salem is a derivative of the word shalom, which means peace. So this king of righteousness, who is the king of the city called Peace, who is a priest of God, comes out to Abram, this priest king, and he brings him bread and wine and shares a meal with Abram. So he takes the bread and wine and he gives it to Abram. If you've grown up around the church, does that sound a little familiar to you? This is my body given for you. This is my blood, take and drink. Um, later on in the New Testament, so Melchizedek sort of appears out of nowhere. Like Abram's the main character. He's the guy that God is with. And this dude, Melchizedek, this king of righteousness and peace, who's the priest of God most high, comes out of nowhere and blesses Abram. And then Abram gives him a tithe, saying, You're, you outrank me. Uh, Book of Hebrews talks about Jesus being our great high priest. <clears throat> from the order of Melchizedek. And, and the, the book of Hebrews contrasts that with the priesthood of Aaron and the Levites that are the main ones of the people of, Jerusalem, of, of Israel. But it's saying Jesus comes from this lineage. And some have even speculated that Melchizedek is like a pre-existent Jesus, like that Jesus has appeared literally through Melchizedek in this moment. I think that's going a bit far, but it's at least a prefiguring of Jesus who is to come. This priest king of God most high who says, I am going to pronounce the blessing on you. This picture of Jesus who goes to great lengths. He lives, leaves the right hand of his father and becomes a man who does it uh, at great cost, uh, giving up his riches and a great sacrifice to rescue us because we were in need because he loves us. And as you see, like, I love just sort of the unity of the whole Bible. There's this, like, little concepts in this story, this weird Game of Thrones story where you see them flourish moving forward to Christ. And something amazing about Abram is that after he is the victor of this thing, he gives all credit to God. 
and he receives the blessing from Melchizedek. Because he's saying, God has to bless me. He is the one who does it. He is God most high. He is the possessor of heaven and earth. I don't rescue anybody. But he is the one who brings the rescue. And I'm just part of that. Um, so that's what that story is all about. I hope that we can figure out how to make that play itself out in our lives as we reach out to others in love, as people who have been rescued by God most high. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for um, your word. Thank you that all of it points forward to you, uh, sometimes in obvious ways, sometimes in hard-to-figure-out ways, but your face is clearly in it all throughout. And we pray that you would show yourself to us and help us to be uh, blessed so that we can be a blessing to others. We pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, please stand up and we're going to sing. Thank <laughs> you.